Now is a special moment for our children. And so I'm going to invite all the children to come a little bit closer to your screens. And I know we have at least one, two little girls in the congregation this morning. So I'm glad to see you this morning, too. Good morning. So I'm going to look at both of you, okay? I'm going to look at the camera, and I'm going to look at you, too. I have something different up here, something you're not used to seeing on Sunday mornings. And that's because in my sermon, in a few minutes, I'm going to draw a picture of a family. Now, it's going to be a different kind of drawing. It's not going to be like people and stick figures. Hopefully, you'll be able to understand when I do it. But there's so many different ways to be a family. In church together this month and this summer, we're hearing stories from the book of Genesis about a family that God wants to work with in a special way. That family looks different from each other and from us. Some families have two parents and five children and two dogs and a cat. Some families have one parent and two children. Some of you may be in families where you have a step-parent and step-brothers and sisters, and maybe you live in a house with your parents and brothers and sisters and maybe a grandparent or a cousin or aunt or uncle. Families have all different ways of looking and being. And sometimes it's not so easy in our families. Every family has conflict sometimes. Maybe every once in a while, if you have a sibling, you get into a little argument Sometimes we don't get along. Sometimes we say things we don't mean to or we do things that we feel sorry about. But you know what? God loves and blesses every single family. And God can work through every single family. And we see that in the book of Genesis because these are not perfect people and they don't always do what they should. But God still loves them and works with them. And you know what? The church is a family. The church is one big family, not just this church, but every church across the world is part of one big Christian family that God calls together. And we don't always get along, and sometimes we argue and disagree, but God always loves us and is always working to help us love each other. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of family in every shape it takes. Most especially today, we thank you for the family of God, for how you connect us with all people everywhere through your love. Forgive us when we fight and we don't get along. Thank you for loving us anyway and help us to grow in that love of one another and of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I know you're curious. I've never used a whiteboard before. At least it's not PowerPoint. I think maybe all of us are tired of Zoom and PowerPoint at this point. I got to thinking as we have been reading these stories of Genesis and the family of Abraham and how it unfolds about family and family dynamics. And I was remembering that when my husband David and I were preparing to get married, we went through four or five counseling sessions, pre-marriage counseling sessions. Maybe you all went through them as well. They were really fun and interesting. One of the first things our counselor asked us to do was to draw a genogram. 
of our families of origin. Now a genogram is you draw the members of your family and then you demonstrate the nature of the relationship between each person and the family. So for example, two parents who have a strong marriage might have a straight strong line between them. But maybe they have a child that they're in conflict with a lot and that would be sort of a, a zigzag line to show there's some conflict. Or maybe there's distance in a relationship, and that might be a dotted line. So just as an example, since we've been looking at the family of Abraham, I'm going to do a very quick run with Abraham's family, and then we'll move on. I'm sorry y'all can't see, but you could just imagine. Um, so we have Abraham, and we learned in Genesis 12 that his wife was named Sarah. And God promised them that they would be the parents of a great nation. But as we know, years went by and they didn't have a child. And so Sarah took matters into her own hands. And she had a servant named Hagar, whom she gave to Abraham as a wife. Now, these are the, the verbs and the descriptions in the story itself. She took Hagar, gave her to Abraham as a wife. Hagar and Abraham had a son named Ishmael. When Hagar became pregnant and gave birth to a son, the story tells us she looked with scorn at Sarah. And Sarah was angry with Hagar and was angry at Ishmael, her son, and there was conflict, and we heard about that story a couple of weeks ago. Then finally, Sarah and Abraham have a son, Isaac. Sarah loves Isaac, Abraham loves Isaac, Abraham loves Ishmael. But the conflict is so strong that finally Sarah convinces Abraham to send Ishmael and Hagar away. We don't know much about the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael, but it was probably a little bit conflicted, we know from one little episode. So there's the happy family right there. And by the way, we learn right before our story today that after Sarah dies, Abraham marries another woman named Keturah and has seven sons through her. The story goes on to say, when Abraham died, he gave everything he had to Isaac. And I'm sure that caused no family conflict whatsoever with the other sons. Thank you. I kind of thought that was meant to be funny, but not so funny to the other brothers. So... That leaves us this morning with the story of Isaac and his family. Last week, we heard the story of Isaac marrying Rebecca. And it seems to have been a relationship of love. It's clear, it says clearly Isaac loved Rebecca. And through Rebecca's behavior, we're going to assume and hope that she loved Isaac as well. And they had a strong, loving marriage between them. They were married for 10 years without children, struggling with infertility, a painful struggle that many of you know. And then Isaac goes and prays to the Lord, and the Lord opens Rebecca's womb, and suddenly she is expecting twins. And the story says that these two twins were wrestling within her. They were jostling within her. They were already in conflict, even in Rebecca's womb. 
we know when they're born, Esau is born first, Jacob is the second born. So Esau has all the rights of the firstborn that came in that culture. We know what their names mean. Esau was born with a lot of hair and a red face, and so he was named Esau, which means red. Jacob was born grasping onto the heel of Esau. His name means supplanter. And maybe that's why they were jostling in the womb, because Jacob, even in the womb, was trying to get out before Esau, trying to be the firstborn. Rebekah, when she was in the midst of her pregnancy, received a word from the Lord that the elder would serve the younger, that Jacob would be the one who would carry forward the covenant of God. And maybe that's why, as they grew up, she favored Jacob. And here's where we get into a little bit more family dysfunction. It says in the story, Isaac loved Esau, but Rachel loved Jacob. If that's not a recipe for family conflict and dysfunction, I don't know what is. Parents playing favorites. One parent favoring one twin, the other favoring the other. This probably means between Isaac and Jacob, there is at best a distant relationship. Rebecca with Esau, maybe seeing Esau as a threat to Jacob, who was meant to carry on the covenant. Maybe this led to distance and conflict between Rebecca and Isaac. We do know that later in the story, a couple of chapters later, Rebecca and Jacob work together to deceive and lie to Isaac so that Jacob could get his blessing. And we see in today's story how Jacob manipulates his older brother, exploits and uses him to get the birthright. Not a lot of smooth lines in this family. A lot of conflict, a lot of dysfunction. And we read these stories, these stories of our heroes and sheroes in the faith, our forebears in the family of God, and we have to wonder, what are we supposed to learn from these characters? I don't think we're supposed to imitate their behavior. Rebecca and Isaac play favorites with their children. Esau cares only about his stomach and is, is willing to give away his position in the family and all the responsibilities that come with it for a bowl of soup. And Jacob is a schemer and a supplanter, constantly deceiving and manipulating to get what he wants. So what are we supposed to learn from this story and this family. I think the clue comes from looking at what God is up to in the story and remembering the purposes of God. To me, at least, there's comfort in this story, recognizing that God continues to move God's story and God's purposes forward, even through a dysfunctional family like that one, and the one of Abraham before it, and the ones that come after. As I shared with the children, none of us comes from a perfect family. I would venture to guess that all of our families, whether nuclear families or extended families, have some level of conflict and dysfunction and alienation. We all have our stories of wounds that we have received from our families and those we have most likely inflicted. And yet, 
Genesis reveals to us a God who works in and through our families and us anyway. God is never going to give up on God's family. And God is never going to give up on God's purposes. So what is God's purpose? We heard it announced in the very first chapter of Genesis, which we looked at together at the beginning of the summer, when God created all of humankind in God's image. One humanity. One human family. And then when God called out Abraham, God said to Abraham, I am creating in you and through you a special chosen people. And in your relationship with me, this unique covenant, I will reveal to the world who I am. I am blessing you, God says to Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. And in you and your family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's God's intention and purpose all along, it seems to me, to reconcile and bring unity and to connect in love all of creation. We see that happening even in this family. In the second story of Jacob's deception, which we didn't hear this morning, when he tricks Isaac into giving him his blessing, Esau is so enraged that he wants to kill his brother. And so Rebekah says to Jacob, go, flee, your brother wants to kill you. And so Jacob runs, and we'll hear his story about his journey for the next few weeks. It's years later when he finally comes home with all of his children and his entourage, he returns home and he is so afraid of what Esau will do. But if you know the story, you know what Esau does. Esau runs out and embraces his brother. He forgives Jacob and the two of them together bury Isaac when he dies. There is reconciliation, even in this family. And you know, that gives me hope too. For all of our families, that God is never going to give up God's work of reconciliation and forgiveness and compassion and unity. The Spirit is always moving, always working to move within us. So even if you are in the midst of a dysfunctional, conflicted family, through the power of God, there is the hope of reconciliation and forgiveness. It gives me hope, too, for our human family. I don't think we're doing so well right now. I don't have to regale you with the details, but you know how deeply conflicted we are right now. In my opinion, it's exacerbated by this pandemic and by the fact that so much of our interaction is happening online, on Facebook, in places where it's easy to dehumanize each other. It's easy to insult and dismiss. It's easy to go and look for those people who will agree with us and just live in this echo chamber of reinforcing each other's opinions and never sitting across the table 
with a member of our human family who may look different and act differently and think differently than we do, and yet who shares with us a common humanity. Sometimes I worry that we're losing sight of that common humanity between ourselves. And yet this story, this beautiful biblical story, gives us an image. I think of Rebecca as she holds these two conflicted brothers within her womb. And I think about God holding within God's self all of humanity and all of our conflict and our wars and our strife and our dysfunction, never giving up on us, working always to bring us to forgiveness and compassion and reconciliation. Now the invitation is, to cooperate with this work that God is doing. We can shut ourselves off to it. It's much easier and more satisfying to stay in our echo chambers and to demonize those who disagree with us. It's much harder to be vulnerable and humble enough to say, I could be wrong. It's harder to listen and to make room for someone else. I don't know what Esau had to go through to be able to embrace his brother again. But that's the kind of journey I want to go on. There will always be conflict. It's human nature. And not all conflict is bad. Sometimes we have to fight for what is right. As we say in our baptismal vows, we have to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, and sometimes that brings on conflict. But may we trust and believe that God is even in the midst of those conflicts, guiding us always on the path of love and truth. And with the vision before us, that with God we are all gathered around one table with God alone as our host where everybody has a seat at the table and can speak and be heard belong and be loved thanks be to God Amen